Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome Ron Caputo to the Philosophy Podcast. Ron is assistant coach at Duke, uh, a man who wears many hats, coaches offense, coaches defense, and a guy that I'm really excited to have on the show. Ronnie, how you doing, man? Doing great. Happy to be with you. Yeah. How's uh, life treating you down there in quarantine? It's not bad here in Carolina. In Wake County, where I live, it's, uh, it's pretty open. Parks are open. Uh, on Friday, they're allowing more than 10 people to be together. So we just got a couple more days of uh, kind of keeping the six or six or less. But I got six in my house, so yeah. I'm at the limit every day. <laughs> you guys have some uh, pretty good backyard lacrosse going on or what? Well, we do. We have a 10-year-old that's just getting into it. My, I have two daughters. I have a 21-year-old daughter and a 10-year-old daughter. And my 10-year-old daughter is starting to really like it. And uh, the kids in the neighborhood like to play, so she's getting into it. So she plays with her brothers a little bit more in the backyard. We have a big net uh, that covers the lacrosse net so we can shoot it. You know, no, no broken windows yet, but it's been fun. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's, um, let's start uh, the way I normally start with guests who come on. And uh, I would love to hear about your lacrosse journey, kind of where it started and, um, and how you've moved from a player into being a coach and, and all the way from Long Island down to uh, North Carolina. Okay, I, I was introduced to the game in my neighborhood. Uh, there was a couple of guys who played lacrosse in my, my neighborhood, in my uh, typical Long Island neighborhood that revolved around an elementary school where everybody met and played. And there was a guy there that you might actually know. Do you, do you remember a guy who went to Brown named Rich De Palma? Of course. Rich De Palma was from my neighborhood. I went to elementary school with him, and he was up there throwing the ball against the wall all the time. And we were like football, hockey, baseball guys. And he would let me handle it a little bit and throw it against the wall. And, you know, I would screw it up and go pick it up. And he would say, ah, oh, you're really going to love this. And then uh, Dave Petromala lived in the neighborhood as well. 
And Dave started picking up the game later. And then he, he, he went, I'm, I'm from Hicksville. I went to Hicksville high school. Dave went to uh, St. Mary's high school. So he lived, but he lived in the neighborhood. So he'd be up there playing too. So I kind of saw it. And then a kid moved into our neighborhood that was a lacrosse rat named Freddie Amaya. And Freddie was, had a ton of sticks and he was, uh, Dave Petromala and Rich Pond were older than me. Freddie was right around my age. So we, st- he started teaching us how to play a little bit. And then I went to middle school, uh, junior high school, I guess they call it at the time. And our gym teacher was our varsity lacrosse coach in uh, junior high school. His name was Chuck Arnone. And he was just passing sticks out to all the, you know, the football, basketball players. Like, come on, I'll join this. All his old sticks, all, all the varsity players would give him sticks to give out to us. And in ninth grade, I finally decided to give up baseball and uh, try out for lacrosse. So, you know, I played on the junior high team in ninth grade, and, and, and that was fun. My first coach was uh, a gentleman named Brian McCauley, uh, and uh, his assistant was a guy named Phil Essekman, who wound up being the varsity coach at Hicksville later on. But uh, those guys were great. I mean, they, they made it fun. They made it so, uh, I mean, you know, pick on the baseball thing, right? Like, you want to sit around or you want to run around, you know? So it's like, hey, we get to run around, hit some guys, play some, you know? So it was, uh, you know, that 1980s uh, flip of the switch from uh, baseball to lacrosse. And then uh, when I got to high school, uh, there was some guys there that you just kind of looked up to. I don't know. You probably you remember Mike McGee. Mike McGee was a senior. Um, Jimmy Magna. They were Hicksville was always a really good tough team, and uh, you know they would always wind up going pretty deep into the playoffs, playing teams like Manhasset or Farmingdale. And Farmingdale was our rival, and I know you talked to Chris Gabrielli, and he talked a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, and when I was in high school, I. I Coach Meyer, Coach Bill Meyer was our coach. He was the coach expert for a lot of years. His son went to Cornell, um, played on their 80s uh, championship game team. I think they lost to Hopkins. Um, but coach was – what's that? Steve Meyer? Yeah, Steve Meyer was the coach. He was on my class. We were in the North-South team game together. Oh, there you go. Um, so coach would have his sons down and, and teaching us. And the assistant coaches were Coach Arnone, who was, uh, again, my junior high – uh, gym teacher and a gentleman named Bill Dunn, who is now the uh, head coach at New York Institute of Technology on Long Island. And Coach Dunn made the game really like he, he knew how to get to you. He was like, you know, if you say like, who's your coach? That was my coach. He was, he got us excited to play, excited to compete against other towns. Um, he instilled the pride and the toughness and the, you know, when we were, when we were bad, he told us when we were bad. When we were good, he told us when we were good. So he kind of got me into wanting to play in college. And, like, I was, a, I was a good player and a good athlete, but I wasn't elite. And I couldn't play major Division One lacrosse, but I loved to play. And, you know, when, when it came down to picking a place to go to school, you know, there was um, some options like, you know, hey, you can come to St. John's, walk on, see – you know, a recruited walk-on or a scholarship coach Nowski was at Hofstra. It was kind of like, yeah, you know, you could, maybe we, you could see you make it, getting on the field as a junior or something like that. And I, I want to play, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't really into waiting. And sometimes I don't know if I made the right decision, but I, I feel like I wanted to play. So I went to, um, I went to Nassau um, for a year and then I went to the University of Scranton. 
and when I went to the University of Scranton, it was it was um, the second year they were varsity, and it was the most interesting time in my life because this upperclassman on that team, like they started the program, they went to the headmaster and the, and the, and the priest uh, Scranton Jesuit School, and they asked him to fund the program, and he agreed. They convinced him, and you know we had a coach that was a football at East Stroudsburg named John Theo Cabots and he was just learning lacrosse <laughs> as he was coaching it and it, it kind of helped me be a little bit of a coach you know like uh, I had to coach a little bit and I had to help and it, it made me it it was the first time I learned about pure investment you know like as a player you're investing your 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 body and your and your mind but when when you're in, when you're coaching and you're involved in it, I felt like I was fully invested in something. It was like the first time I learned that, and uh, you know, it it was a great experience, and, and it helped me. I think it helps me now in especially in recruiting. You know, when it, when I'm talking to families and they, you know, it's like, oh, you know, go to Duke or bust. I said, no, there's plenty of places to play. And, yeah. You know, like uh, there's great experience and there's extraordinary journeys at every level, and you meet great friends. I mean, my friends were the best man at my wedding the my college teammates were the godfathers of my children and um i i, I think i think it's a little blown out of proportion the levels of the, how people get you know it's really about an education and the experience sure. but i get it I, you know i get the tv and the and the and the splash of division one lacrosse it is intense and it's great but i think it helps me in terms of understanding the, the landscape when i'm talking to people yeah so then when you graduated how'd you get into coaching you know, I, I was, I was trying to make ends meet. I was working in the restaurant business and I was, I, I was uh, trying to get a job uh, working for the state, whether it's, whether it was like in, uh, for the town of Oyster Bay where I lived or whatever. So I was working in the restaurant business and, and coach unknown, you know, I said, Hey, can I come down and help her? So I was volunteering at my, uh, my former high school. It was my first year and I was helping out with the varsity and, it was a it was a great group of kids. I you know, I alluded to it earlier. Keith Cromwell was on that team. Danny Kachi, mm -hmm. uh, these MLL guys. Brian Sopa was the goalie, who was a terrific uh, player, coach, and young man. Um, and a lot of these guys are still. Tommy Kessler was on that team. He went to Hofstra. I think he's Hofstra's all-time leading scorer. Yeah. Really good team. Went to the uh, Long Island Championship and uh, played against uh, Ward Mel. Kenny Brochart, who was an assistant at High Point, was on that team. Oh, a lot really? of really good kids, and it was a great experience. And I just caught the bug. Yeah. And uh, the following year, I applied to be an assistant coach at Syosset High School, where a gentleman named Jeff Capri was the head coach. And I don't know if you know John Pappas. Do you know John Pappas? Yeah. John Pappas uh, is a Long Island lacrosse legend. He runs the Caniac Park Summer Lacrosse League, which is a story in itself. Uh, but he was the athletic director there. And he was great to me. He allowed me to be a coach, even though I wasn't a teacher. He allowed me to uh, work in the school and supervision. So I was around the kids and I could be around as much as possible. I was able to coach basketball there. I, uh, I coached football. So I was able to coach a couple of sports there. And I started to just learn. And there was some guys back then that were in Nassau County coaching. I think some of them are still there that were tremendous uh, people to be around, even though they competed against you, they wanted you to be better. They wanted you to learn. Ernie Olsen, Jim Casper, 
um, Bob Hartraft, Doc Doherty, Alan Lowe. These were these were pure teachers. You know, what like this? they. This was like the late '90s, I guess, uh, early 2000s. Um, Joe Baccarella, Buddy Krumenacker was a big influence. He, he, he understood that people looked to him and he never shied away from it. He would talk to you after the game if they beat you. You know, he knew you were down. He would like say, you guys are doing great. You know, he was just a positive guy. Um, and then I got involved with coaching the Long Island Empire State team. Uh, I don't know if you remember the Empire State games. Oh, yeah. But uh, it was the biggest thing on Long Island. And, uh, the biggest thing in the whole Yeah. So I got involved in it. And Matt Donowski's on the team. So I get to know Matt really well. And I get to know Coach. And a volunteer spot opened at Hofstra. So I said, I'd love to do it. You know, whatever you want me to do, I'll do, you know. So the staff at the time was obviously Coach Donowski. It was Joe Amplo, who is now the head coach at Navy. Uh, Sean Smith, who still to this day is the greatest teacher of lacrosse I've, I've met. And, uh, you know, great, guy too. great friend and uh, just a great mind for the game. I mean, I, it's a shame he's not coaching as much as he used to, but. You know, I was able to work with Joe Amplow, Sean Smith, and John Donowski uh, for three years, which was unbelievable experience. And as I was moving along that path, Coach Donowski decided to um, apply for the job at Duke when the opening, uh, when, when after 2006. So he, he applied to be the coach in 2007. And he had, uh, Kevin Cassis was there and uh, Chris Gabrielli was going there with him. And he asked me if I wanted to go there to be the volunteer. And I was a little like, ah, you know, I got things rolling a little bit on Long Island. And I was, uh, was kind of happy. And I was a little scared. I was like, wow, I don't know. That's a big move. You know, like Long Island guy going down to North Carolina. Um, and then I was able to work with Seth Tuny for a year. Seth became the head coach at Hofstra. So and Matt Rakowski came in. So it was myself, Joe Amplo, uh, Matt Rakowski, and Seth Tierney. And that was a tremendous learning experience. It was Seth's first year as a head coach. And if you know Seth, he's very detailed. He's very organized. He's, and that was great to be around him for his first year. And, uh, and then what happened was Kevin Cassis became the head coach at Lehigh. Right. And, it, and a paid position at Duke opened up. And when Coach Donowski called, my wife just said to me, like, you know, this is the second time that you've had this opportunity to talk to Coach D. Are you really going to not go again? And I said, well, you know, I was, you know, we had three kids at the time and we were thinking. And so I said, I'm going to go visit. And I went to visit. I, I met uh, Dr. Chris Kenny, which is our associate uh, director of athletics. And I spent a lot of time with Chris Gabrielli, who I already knew and, and I trusted. Yeah. Um, and I just, the place was just magical. And I, I had this feeling when I was there that Coach D was in a different place than he was at Hofstra. And not that I mean like he became a better coach, but I just think sometimes the right person is in the right place. Yeah. I, I thought Duke fit coach. Like coach is a, uh, he's an, he's intellectual he's a teacher by nature he's he's always searching for knowledge he's a reader and like duke, duke reeks of that you know duke reeks reeks of like the, 
like trying to figure things out. That's just, everything in that school is about learning and moving in that direction. And it just fit him. And he was in a really comfortable place. And, you know, my wife was for it. So I said, all right, let's go. So uh, we went down there. And the other part of it is one of my best friends from college. This is, this is again, the lacrosse world. Like at the University of Scranton, one of my uh, best friends was a gentleman named Bob Detzer who lived in North Carolina. And he lived about 40 minutes from Duke and he had uh, four children as well. And I was trying to find a house and he said, come live with me. Like, like a lacrosse teammate would. Right. So I live with him for six months. And then my family comes down. We live with them for another year as our house is being built. And it was like, it was incredible because my sons got close to his sons. His sons were lacrosse players and, you know, we wound up staying. I mean, we still live a little far away from Duke than people would think. We live about 40 minutes from Duke. And my, my parents moved down here. Like, I, I just have a, a life down here that I, I never thought I would. You know, I remember my wife and I moved into our house. And it was brand, you know, it was a brand new house. And I never thought I would live in a brand new house. I mean, only if you move from Long Island <laughs> to North Carolina would you, could you be able to do something like that. So I remember being kind of emotional, saying to my wife, I can't believe we're here doing this. And uh, I still honestly feel that way when I go to that school. Every time I pull in there, I, I kind of have to touch myself and remind myself how fortunate I am to be working there. It's just an incredible place. What was it like in the um, in the aftermath of um, of the Duke um, scandal, whatever you want to call it, where basically these kids all got hosed and dragged through the mud? What was it like for the program in those years after, as you were, you know, fighting to prove who you really were? Well, I, I think it's like anything else. The positives you got to take out of it is that it, it's an incredible learning experience for the kids. I think it. It was it was an it was eye opening to the point where, if you think you have something special, you need to protect special, and you yeah. can't let the devil in the door. Whether it's your fault, their fault, it doesn't matter. You have some responsibility. Not all of it, certainly to the to the um, uh, the way it was magnified and, and made up. But there's there's a certainly a big difference between having uh, an inappropriate get together, yeah, and a you know, uh, a major crime. Right. So, but how quickly things can, can move and how, how powerful the media is. You know, I always say that I, there, it's rare that a year goes by where I'm not in an airport and someone sees a Duke lacrosse shirt on me and says, hey, whatever happened with that thing? Yeah. So the, the, to remember that is to, yeah, they, they know about the accusation, but they have no idea that, you know, probably for the first time in North Carolina jurisprudence, people were declared innocent, not no contest, not not guilty. Simply, they had nothing to do with this and it didn't happen. So that, that part of it is, is still, you know, to the non-lacrosse people, they just think because they read a headline that something happened, you know. And I will say, like, I knew a lot of the kids that were on that team. Like I said, I coached the Empire State team, Casey Carroll, Matt Danowski, Danny Loftus. Michael Ward, I knew those guys. And one of the reasons I was really comfortable coming down to Durham is because I never believed it. Right. I never, for a minute, after talking to those guys two days after it happened, uh, two days after the story broke, I never believed it. And I felt really comfortable getting in front of them because let's face it, there was, 
when something like that happens to you, you struggle to trust adults. Yeah. Because you're trying to tell people, we didn't do anything. And they're telling you, well, we'll see. And I wasn't one of those guys. Coach Nowski wasn't one of those guys. And Chris Gabrielli wasn't one of those guys. And Chris Kennedy wasn't one of those guys. So that was, that kind of um, was, I think, the glue for the team. Um, you know, and it, it's interesting because what's happening now with this uh, 50-year options yeah. is something we went through then. I know. I was going to ask you about that. What, 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 how is it similar? Well, what's similar is the positives are that there's opportunity to recoup what possibly was lost, right? So, you know, the seniors that lost their season have the ability to, to have a redo, so to speak. But the negatives are that the guys underneath were waiting their turn yeah. respectfully and they wanted to, they may want to be leaders. And, you know, I, I do remember that that was hard, you know, like you have a, a senior class leaving and the, the senior class that is, is up and coming is excited to lead the team, excited to uh, run the uh, rites of passage that go along with being right. on a team. And, hey, who does it? Do we do it? Or does the older guys do it? Because they're still here. Right. And that part of it is different. And the, the hardest part for the kids is knowing their, their place. Because, you know, things don't stay the same. You know, like teams, talent returns, but chemistry doesn't. Yeah. And chemistry doesn't because people have a different mindset year to year. You know, you see it on professional teams all the time. They win the World Series or the Super Bowl. And some role player who did a great job wants a lot more money. Yeah. And his mindset is different. He doesn't think of himself as a role. Whatever, whatever the situation is, but the, 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 the chemistry is different. And no one's better at adjusting that than Coach Danowski. He, his, his feel for that is his, is his mastery, is what it separates him, I think. I mean, he's a great X's and O coach. He probably forgot more. I mean, there's this times when I say to him, hey, I got this great idea. Let's do this. And he'll say, oh, you know, back in 84, we did that. <laughs> and I said, oh, really? <laughs> I thought I had this great idea. And, you know, he's done it all, seen it all. You know, the best thing I can do sometimes is remind him of it. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it's an interesting situation with this. Okay. Uh, it's an interesting situation with this extra year. Who's going to take it? Yeah. Bigger rosters, you know, you and I discussed it a little bit before we came on the podcast. It's you got to be better than you ever had to be to get to the point where you used to be. Yeah. And you're going to have to do it with some new faces and the locker room is going to be fuller. And, you know, I just keep saying to myself and to the guys I talk to, fellas, I just hope we're at school and I hope we're together. Yeah, exactly. We're in that situation where we have too many really good players, I just, that's good. That's a good thing. Let's pray that we're there. Yeah, the competition level is going to be steeper. And um, I think that uh, the cream's going to rise to the top as far as, you know, culture and just overall development of, of teams on and off the field, don't you think? I do. And, and I actually think injuries are going to be prevalent. You know, don't forget, we're going to have a bunch of kids who haven't played in a really long time, excited to get after it, with a, with a more powerful, deep roster than ever. So practices are going to be competitive, physical, and probably longer because you have more guys. And I, I think that 
before it's over, I think injuries, certainly the transfer piece and the additions and things like that will be a factor. But I think injuries are going to be a big factor as, and again, we, I just hope we're there to have these conversations, James. I hope we're all back in school and safe and doing what we love to do again as soon as possible. Totally. Now, you came in as a defensive coach or, or as an offensive coach? I coached defense at Hofstra with um, – it was Coach Amplo and I coached the defense at Hofstra for my time there. And when I came in, I was um, like, Coach D loves to coach. You know, he's like you. You know, like, coach, because you've earned that, but you want to be, you, you know, the reason you earn of the game and you, you got these, uh, you know, certainly we had some uh, really good teams at Hofstra and a lot of really talented kids. But this particular group was different, and, and Coach was excited to be um, coaching, you know, not just, yeah. you know, he wanted to coach. So he said, you know, I want you to, uh, you know, help me with, with uh, the Scout D, but I want you to help Chris with the game planning. So, and Chris was, Chris is great. You know, like Chris wants to be great, and he wants to win. He's like, he's like the kid who, overachieves because he's just got the, these, these pieces inside him, these, these uh, intangible pieces to him that just are, are he's made of a winner. Yeah. And he, he, he's okay with, you know, taking some help. Because a lot of young coaches, you know, like, this is my side. And I, this is my turf. He wasn't like that. He wanted help. He wanted help. He wanted to be great. He wanted to win. He wanted it for the kids because he knew what, what they had gone through. He wanted them to be successful as uh, we all did. So it, it was – I was defense to start. I didn't start coaching the offense until 2010. I think uh, in 2010, Coach wanted to be more on both sides. He wanted to walk down and have his presence felt on both sides. Yeah. Um, he, he started to – he always trusted us, but he, he wanted to, like, put his stamp on 2010. So I was coaching the offense, and Chris was coaching defense, and Coach on any day – could be on either end of the field. So that was the first year I was coaching offense. And it was, I don't want to say it was easy, but we were talented. Ned Crotty was a fifth-year senior. Our attack was Ned Crotty, Max Quinzani, and Zach Howell, who really came together nice. We had a really talented first midfield, like every ACC team does and usually should. And uh, we were deep facing off. We were really good in the middle of the field, so we got transition. And, you know, we – we played in a, a serious battle on Memorial Day weekend on a Saturday night, probably one of the greatest games involved in the, probably, I don't know, it might have been the only night game in the history of the Final Four. We played Virginia at night. I was there. In 2010, and it, it was, I mean, you saw two teams exhausted. I mean, in the end of that game, it was just, who's going to blink? And... And then two days later, you got to gear up against Notre Dame in an extremely different game, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you have this 14-13, you know, cheering and screaming. And then you have this intense chess match on, on the Monday where, you know, we just had a guy make a play. You know, uh, it's, it's interesting. When I first got to Duke, I, um, I tried to get in touch with Mike Krzyzewski. I wanted to meet Mike Krzyzewski. And I, I said, uh, I sent him an email. I said, coach, I just want 15 minutes of your time. And he said, I, you know, I got time for you, whatever this day is. And I just asked him, I said, how, how can we, 
how do I become a champion? I, I know we can be a champion here at Duke. And he said things like, he said, you need to recruit and find an assassin. He said, you, assassins make everybody else on your team calm because they're calm. He says, you need someone that can just, you know, in the biggest moments be relaxed. And I said, well, how do I find him? And he said, don't ever recruit a kid that you don't see playing his high school rivalry game and dominate. And that was CJ Costabile for me. I mean, Chris Gabrielli already had CJ locked up by the time I got there. But when I met him, he was an assassin. He was calm. He was a positionless kind of kid, you know, like, was he a great LSM? Probably yes, but not as, not the greatest. Uh, was he a great face-off guy? No, but when you put together all those things, he was an X factor. Yeah. And when everybody was riled up, that guy just made an unbelievable play. And he did that in his career. And it's funny, uh, Coach Krzyzewski, when he was talking about the assassins, he was talking about Christian Leitner. Yeah. And he, he said Christian Leitner. Bobby Hurley, Grant Hill, he talked about his guys that were, you know, really, really great competitors and, and all those things. But he just talked about how they were calm. And he said that when Christian Leitner hit the shot against Kentucky, he said he, he called it the shot. And he said, I don't know what Duke basketball would be today if it wasn't for the shot. And it was right after CJ Costable scored that goal, you know, one of the guys from inside lacrosse, I, I regret that I don't remember which one it was came over to me with a microphone and said, you know, what do you think? And I, I said, I said, I hope one day we say this is our shot. And I wonder what Duke lacrosse would be if it wasn't for the shot. And it, it's just amazing how our play, you know, I don't know if a play changed the program. I think people change a program, but I, I think it could propel a program. It does. Well, because we know that, you know, you can do everything right and still not win. And there's a little bit of a luck factor there. And then, you know, you can, you can point to that one thing that kind of turned, turned the tide. Funny. I remember watching CJ Costabile get like three and three against hand high school in a, in a high school game in Connecticut. I think when he was a senior and, you know, it just makes me also realize just the value of, having all of these traits um, and even as a defensive player to have a skill level that's worthy of being a man, an extra man player and to score the game winner in in a national championship game. You know, he was, he was training for that the way he developed and played all the way through. Yeah. I mean, his freshman year, he was the most valuable player in the ACC tournament. (laughs) He had a hat trick in the, in the uh, ACC championship game at UNC against UNC and I remember saying to myself, I'm like, I, this is, this is different what we're seeing here. You yeah. know, like I've seen it a few times. I, I remember Jamie Hanford being, yeah. being that kind of a quality uh, offensive threat in the middle of the field. And there certainly were others. I mean, at the time, actually in college across, there was a bunch of them with Joel White and Scott Ratliff and Jesse Bernhardt. Yeah. But you know, CJ was my guy. So I, I'll go with him. <laughs> Those guys are great, but I'll go with him. <laughs> I remember um, around that time watching that championship game or that semifinal game that you're referring to, the night game. And I just remember watching um, razor picks. And I, I think that was like around the, the time that that was kind of first yes. done. And it was Ned Karate against Kenny Colossen. Yes. Right? Wasn't that the matchup? And um, uh, I was just curious where you uh, kind of came up with that. Um, 
that concept because it's obviously become pretty pretty commonplace now, but it's a, it's a tough look. It is. I mean, you know, like it's funny. I joke around that now I'm a defensive coordinator. I, I, I may have been one of the guys to bring that to the table and people have been shoving it down my throat ever since, you know, uh, Sean Curry and the Virginia guys and everybody else. But um, we got it from watching the baseline picks in basketball. Okay. You know, we were like, they weren't, they were like five, you know, five or six feet off of the, of the uh, baseline and just watching how hard it was for people to ma- manipulate without getting blocking fouls. And we originally thought with the guys we had that year, with Steve Schoelfel and Ned Crotty, they were so adept at turning the corner that if we could just kind of create an angle where that goal was in their way, we can turn the corner. But then we started getting guys backing off of it and we were getting under and we would get, guys were overplaying it and we were getting over the top. And then we started practicing a lot. And, it, you know, kind of like your, your two-man uh, game, we, we started to feel like we were seeing every way it was defended. And we practiced it enough to say, hey, you know, there's nothing they can do to stop this unless they bring three. And if they bring three, we're going to have an outlet and we're going to attack the weak side. And, you know, obviously good players make things work, right? Like we've, we've tried it again, even, even as great as Jordan Wolf was, he didn't enjoy the razor pick as much as like Crotty did. Yeah. Wolf likes to Wolf liked to line up and go. He yeah. he felt like the the pick sometimes got in the way of his creativity. So we just let him go. And mm-hmm. you see you see a lot less of that, by the way. You see a lot less of guys that just race by people. Uh, you see more of the picking game. Um, but yeah, like it came from basketball, and mm-hmm. those guys excelled at it. Um, especially Crotty, like you, to your point, like we actually. I mean, that's how we set up the game-winning goal in the Virginia game was a razor pick on the side, and, and they backed off, and they hung him up. And Quinzani was a relentless off-ball worker. And, uh, you know, again, like you said, sometimes you get lucky, but I really do think the big games are won by someone making a play. Yep. Like, I don't think Virginia defended poorly. I'm sure that they would say, oh, we could have done this or could have done that. And when CJ yep. scored, I don't think Notre Dame did anything wrong in the front three. I just think somebody made a play. And it's happened against us too, you know, like we, you know, we played Virginia last year and Matt Moore made a great play. And I, I'm, I love the game and I love when they, listen, I don't want to lose, but if I lose, I like it much better when somebody makes a play that I can say, wow, that they made a play. Yeah. And uh, that's, you know, it happens, you know, we've, uh, we've been there enough to know, like to your point, you want to be healthy, you got to be lucky. But when you get to the, the end, Someone's got to make a play because everybody's good. And uh, it goes back to trying to find those guys that make them. No doubt. And developing them, which is a, a topic I wanted to chat about. I mean, one of the things that Duke was always known for under Coach Danowski was just uh, such a strong commitment to player development. And I just remember, you know, just as a lacrosse fan, watching your teams and your middies in, in particular, I, I, they were on, you were on TV every week, and, and I would just see these guys with like, hey, that's a move I haven't seen out of those guys. You know, like every week there was like a new little wrinkle, uh, like Chapuka. Was that, was that right, one? Yeah. I remember that kid so clearly all of a sudden having these, you know, I'm sure you were seeing it in practice, but these, all these redodges. And um, really – what I want to ask you about is your philosophy on player development and specifically how you, how you teach dodging. Well, coach, coach D 
has two segments in every practice for individual work. So it's like 24, two 12 minute segments where you get your position group. Like if, you know, for argument's sake, if I'm coaching the offensive middies, I have them and maybe he has the attack and these, you know, the short 60 middies. And the, so you have 24 minutes every single day, including Friday pregame to work on something individual because that's what he believes in. Yep. And he doesn't always tell you, like, he, he won't say in it, hey, individual work, Jamie, work on split dodging. But if he thinks that you want, you know, if he thinks that we're lacking something, he says, all right, I want split rolls. I want, you know, I want split dodges, pump the hot guy, take the alley rollbacks. Like, he, he is engaged in that very much. So it's really, it's uh, coach-led, player-fed or coach-fed, player-led, because <laughs> we start getting into it a lot. And we're constantly split-dodging against cones. We're constantly attacking top foots. And, you know, we are – the other part of it is, and we talked about this a little earlier before we got on the podcast, but Coach Donowski likes to recruit kids that aren't finished products. You know, uh, you know the Rob Rotans, the Jake Trapuca, the Dave Lawsons, the Miles Jones that are big, strong, athletic kids that are going to reach a pinnacle by the time they graduate versus, you know, listen, it, there's nothing wrong with getting that, you know, that perfect skill set. You're seeing more of that now because you're seeing kids with that have great tutelage and yeah. individual lessons. So they come in more ready now, but, you know, Back in 2010 to 2015, 16, you could get these three sports. Jay Trapuca was a three-sport athlete. Dave Lawson played four sports nights. We played hockey and basketball <laughs> during the same season. So, I mean, he wasn't getting private lessons. So when you get kids like that, you, you can, you're basically their tutor, right? And, and you're, you're recruiting kids with potential versus the, you know, the, the, you know, the, already, the already ready model. Yeah. So that part of it, that's a big part of it too, right? You're recruiting kids that are going to get better and they're a little raw, but they, they get competitive because when you have these three sport athletes, they don't like stinking. They don't like the fact that some lax guy is better than them at something. Right. And if you don't like motivate them, so to speak, you can twist them into like really working at it. And, and, uh, you know, we shoot a lot. Coach Janowski is a big believer in shooting a lot in practice. We shoot three times in practice. We shoot, well, we shoot four times. We shoot pre-practice form and then live shooting and then uh, close to the cage form shooting and then live shooting again at the end of practice when we're tired. So, you know, that's like 35 minutes of shooting every day. Coach believes strongly in shooting. I mean, a lot of guys do now. 35 minutes of shooting plus 24 minutes of skill. So you got about 50. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, yeah, so the things that, that he finds important that, you know, he thinks, and he's right in a lot of ways, like we don't practice man up, man down every day. You know, it's, uh, you know, every other day, probably a bunch on Friday. Um, but he thinks, you know, that's four minutes a game. These other things are all game long, Yeah. you know, and, you know, as the season goes on, we probably do that stuff a little bit more and a little bit more of writing later in the season. But Coach Donowski believes really strongly that you work on the man, and if the, man has, if the man's character keeps rising, he will want to be great. So then the individual sessions are what they look forward to. And it's not really taxing on the body. I mean, you know, yeah. the whole 
you know, the key, the key to Coach Sanowski's dodging, he, he believes in fast hands and violence with the ground. Like, we, he thinks when you put your foot in the ground, you're, you're really – you're trying to stomp. And, uh, we, you know, we, we do a lot of drills of that, putting your foot in the ground. Matt Sanowski's great at it now. I mean, you watch um, where he coaches uh, – you know, he does dodging drills with ladders and, you know, things like that, that he really promotes the double moves and the, you know, uh, you know six yards away and then three yards away. You know, one move six yards, one move three yards. Get those hips turning. He's he's kind of upped it. Um, for but when I was coaching the offense from 2010 to 2015, I think yeah, 2015, we were kind of developing developing our middies to be lacrosse players because we got athletes first. And, and again, like a lot of the credit goes to the kids because they're the again they were the type of kids that were going to get better. Right. But you. It was fun. Like they were the type of kids you want. Like, yeah, you were the type of kids you wanted to be around. What I remember you. Um, we were talking one time a couple of years ago, and you're like, "Yeah, you know, I just I don't love these guys that are like private lesson guys." You know, you had this terminology for private lesson players, and it doesn't mean that like you should never do a private lesson. That really wasn't the point. But no, I, would, that, I didn't mean that at all. But I understand. Yeah, what I meant was that. The, to them was split dodging and shooting on the run because, and they were really good at it. I mean, they were, and, but they thought it was the game. Yeah. You know, they, they didn't, they didn't think about getting their teammate open. They didn't think about getting in the hole on defense because they were dodge and shoot guys. And, and again, excellent at it and everybody has to do it, but I felt like they. There's more to the game. Right. I felt like they were just, that's what they did all the time. They didn't watch the game. They didn't um, like challenge themselves by playing other sports. I mean, listen, if you play basketball, you can play lacrosse, you know, like it is very similar, you know, the skill set. obviously you got to put time into it. But like, I just felt like there was too many kids that were just, you know, they could inside roll and they can question mark, but you know, when their team lost the ball, they didn't have any concept of riding. They didn't have any concept of getting out of each other's way. I said, you know, how do you know how to inside roll and step away like that? And you stand right in the middies way every time he dodges. I mean, the first thing you learn in sports, is get out of the way, <laughs> you know? So I, I, I felt like they, the, it was, a, it was a me thing, right? You know, like how do I score versus this, you know, versus teaching them these invisible plays that make teams great. You know, because let's face it, to the winner goes the spoils. You want to make All-American? Go to the Final Four. Those are the teams that get all the All-Americans. <laughs> There's some great players that didn't make All-American that uh, just didn't play in those games, you know. And to the, the better the team does, the better the individuals do, you know. One of the things I've, I've, I've always loved about watching you guys play offense, and we'll talk a little bit about defense in a minute, but – it's just you move the ball so well. And in particular, I feel like you guys are as good as anybody at moving the ball and then getting it inside, drawing a slide, kicking it, and then looking inside in all different ways from different areas. And it's, it's been going on for a while. I feel like you guys have been great at that for like five, seven, eight years, something like that. How do you guys get so good at being able to get the ball inside so well? I think – I think it's just a product of ball speed yeah. of, of like on a daily basis, having one of your non-negotiables that the ball has to be thrown hard. I mean, you, 
I've always believed too that by the end of the season, everybody sees your films. They know exactly where you're going. They know your, your pattern and you're not going to create some new offense late in the year. Typically that's going to surprise someone. You might have an opener, right? That'll get somebody for a goal, but what they can't tell on film is how quickly that ball is swinging and how quickly people are attacking passes. And the, as the year goes on, the defenses get better at getting ball side heavy. You know, we're going to talk about defense and being in slide ready. And the quicker you move the ball, the quicker they have to move. And then the stick fakes work. It's kind of like playing man up. If you, if you can move the ball fast enough, six on six, you can create man up type philosophy. So, I mean, we drill it. I mean, we, we drill getting the ball inside. You know, we, we, we work really hard with our attackmen on, you know, finishing. Like we talked a little bit earlier about scoring versus shooting. Mm -hmm. And I, and I believe that, that that mentality has to be prevalent in your program versus, you know, don't get the best shot, get the best scoring opportunity. Yeah. You know, because some guys think their shot is the best scoring opportunity <laughs> and that needs to be, that needs to be adjusted. So you made the move back to the defense, which was probably a lot of fun. It's just so fun to coach both sides of the ball and defense is awesome. How did your philosophy evolve? from the times at Hofstra through your early days at Duke through being an offensive coordinator and then back to coaching the defense? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I mean, we, uh, coach D decided that in 2016, my, 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 one of the jokes was that my son was coming onto the team and coach D's like, we're not letting you coach your son. You're going down the other end. So I was excited for it. It's a challenge. I, I think the offenses now are so much more difficult to contend with than they were back in the 2004, 2005, when I was coaching defense at Hofstra. Yep. Just the, the two-man game in general and the off-ball trading that is going on, you know, you really get put in, in tough spots. Do I stay with my man? Do I hold my spot? So I would say back then we were very man-conscious. We were match-up conscious. And, you know, when you go back and watch films of the early 2000s, if – if you had a matchup, like say your, your assignment was to cover Mike Powell, like 85% of the game, you were on him. Now, if you try to do that, you're going to open huge gaps for other cutters. So you, you know, it's funny. You, you watch these games on TV and sometimes you'll hear the announcers say, Quinn will say, Hey, you know, why the heck is there a short stick on, you know, Chris Gray. And it's because there's so much movement that if you go with them, you will allow too much space for the Dodgers. And nowadays I think there's more guys that can beat you. So, and there's the schemes are better. So you really need to play team versus, Hey, we're going to play man to man. And Hey, if Jamie Monroe gets beat three times, then we're going to get, we're going to take him out and put someone else in. It's really not that you need to be help ready and you need to be really more of a concentration on making the guy with the ball think about all seven of us versus saying this guy can handle this guy and we're going to let him go to battle. You still have to win battles, but the offense is so well trained against slide package. Now, like they do things in their skeleton that mimic the slide packages and you can't allow them to just paint by the numbers in the game. Yeah. The guy with the ball has to be thinking. And I do believe that the best defenders for the team now 
is a great interior defender. I thought when Yale won the national championship, they had an interior defender named Keating that made everybody on their defense look better than they were. Not that they weren't excellent. They were. But he had a way of kind of turtling in and out and slowing Dodgers down so that d caught up and shoved them or Poles trail checked them. Everybody who had the ball was thinking about, was he coming, was he not? Yep. And he made everybody better. And I think that idea of forcing the guy with the ball to think, it's kind of like, I always think about Peyton Manning. You know, he comes to the line, he looks at it, and if it's exactly what he thinks it is, he's getting the first down. <laughs> you know, like, so, and not that all the guys that handle the ball in Division One games are, are like that, but they're pretty well trained. And if you slide from the same place all the time and you're constantly going or constantly not going, you are going to wind up giving up a ton because they're going to get comfortable. They need to, they need to mentally be uncomfortable. If you can just make them just uncomfortable physically, that's great. But the disruption of the ball carrier has to be in their mind as well as their, in physicality. I want to so talk throw their shot off, all that stuff. A, a question on an on-ball defense how do you how do you look at on-ball defense from um shorts versus poles how similar is it in the footwork of either backing off drop stepping hip turns getting a bump on guys how do you sort of distinguish those skills or or or, or not and how do you sort yeah, of look? We, we try not to as much as possible um the two words we use the most are control and disrupt. And we want to control our man as best we can outside of the paint area, outside of 13, 14 yards. And we want, whether it's a short stick or a long stick, we want the stick out. We want the stick like kind of glued to that bottom hand as much as we can. And then whichever way that Dodger decides to go, we don't want to drop step. We kind of got away from that. We, yeah. uh, we, we, got, we, we used the term mirror step because we were drop stepping a little bit too much. And then the quick split back was catching us with our hip turned and then we were opening up. We weren't being able to turn again. So we were mirroring their step and then whichever way they went, we would run, we would move with the mirror step towards our stick so that we can engage physically right away. So we want to like have our stick out in a poke, but we don't want to necessarily poke to lunge. We want to leave it there. And then whichever way they go, we're going to leave our stick and we're going to, run up our stick to get some contact mm -hmm. now with the poles it's a lot easier obviously because you have more of a buffer but with the short sticks we're probably like most teams we're more apt to help our short sticks immediately yeah. than we are our poles but in terms of the approach to the ball it's very similar similar regardless of the size of the stick we actually yeah. do a drill once a week where everybody has a short stick so yeah. that we are slide ready to everything let's talk a little bit we were talking before we got on here about two-man game, a webinar I sent you. Um, yeah. And you made some really interesting comments about what you think is, is, is looking into the future of two-man game. And I would love to hear your opinions on that as a, from the perspective of a defensive coordinator. Well, it's funny. I, what I was saying before is I, I think these, these, these two-man games with uh, all these – these great teachers are becoming very daunting to defend. And, and I don't think you can go into uh, a pick situation saying, this is how we defend picks and being black and white on it. And because I do believe that, you know, it's kind of like 
watching Carl uh, Malone <laughs> in the uh, Utah days, no matter what you do, you're wrong. <laughs> and I think these guys are getting really good at it. And I think coaches are very good at watching film and seeing who is least comfortable in the two-man game on your defense and really, you know, kind of picking that, that scab. So I think everyone on your team has to be able to, and I mean everyone, your face-off guys, your omitties, your attackmen should be able to understand it because they're the ones learning the offensive part of it. Yeah. But they all could get caught. And you need to defend it in more than one way. For the same reason I was saying before, they cannot get comfortable or else you'll get picked apart. And then if you have to bring three over to a pick, then obviously the backside opens up and you, and you can be in, you know, you'll be exposed in a different way. I think the game is, is an offensive game now. And I think that makes it great. And it makes it a great challenge defensively. It's weird. I, I think defensive efficiency is up because there's more possessions and they're faster because of the shot clock. Mm -hmm. So I think people's defensive percentage of stops is up, but that doesn't, but more goals are still being, yeah. Goals are being scored more, uh, excuse me, more goals are being scored. It's a more of an um, offensive game because of the because of that, but it you know it doesn't mean that it's not any less important to play great defense. Just like in basketball, you might score eighty points, but you you know you gotta like play great defense on every single possession and make it as difficult as possible. But you might need to win twenty nineteen in certain weeks. Yeah, I mean there, there's still gonna be there's still gonna be those games that you know those cold weather games where the shooting is off or whatever it is. But I do believe that we're going to be in the teens for, no doubt. and I think it's good. I, you know, I don't I think it's a bad thing. Way more I mean, fun to watch. Yeah. Well, listen, don't forget. There's also more full-time serving penalties. So there's, you know, you can get two goals scored against you and one man up, yep. you know, things like that. Um, there's more fouls being called. Um, yeah. It's weird. It's less physical than it was in the nineties, uh, but there's more fouls being called. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that part of, but I, I do believe that, if you don't have more than one way to defend the, the two-man game, no matter where it is, you are going to, you know, over 60 minutes, they're just going to get comfortable. I agree. Then, the hard part is scenario. so difficult, in my opinion, having coached a lot of defense also, to try to get people to do a lot of different things. Because then all of a sudden, you know, you get – as soon as there's indecision, you know, you're in your, you're in your deepest dark place coaching <laughs> yeah. defense um, against two men. And I, I just remember we had, you know, John Thorpe had a defense with us in Denver where we, we were doubling picks all of the time. And then people started like, you know, spreading us out, obviously. And then it was like, all right, well, let's, let's, let's not double when you get to a certain area. And all of a sudden you start to do different things and it's like, man, circuits start blowing in, in people's heads and it's, it's, the communication is hard. So I don't disagree. It's just easier said than done, I guess. Right? No, there's no question, but I do believe it's so much more prevalent now. Like it happens in every single possession Yeah, constantly. and it's going to be more of your time than mumbos are, or even invert. Like it's something that has to be. And the other thing about it is if you can, if you can stop it early in a game and they go away from it a little bit, you can take away a little of their identity. Mm. So I, I do think it's a big, listen, I, I don't, I don't know a team that doesn't do it. Right. You know, everybody's doing it. Yeah. And for all the reasons you said on, on your, um, on your presentation, you know, even if you don't use it and you bring in a defender out of the defensive equation, I mean, you know what uh, you see teams doing it with their face-off guy because maybe the face-off guy isn't good enough at defending it or he's uncomfortable in the defensive end so it's happening in every aspect of play 
So it's a, it's a big concentration. I mean, we spend, we end practice with it. Like we end practice with our defensive guys playing without sticks, which is a ball in their hand without their gloves. Like it's basketball and they're jump cutting and Jake picking and hard picking and repicking. And we have to communicate through it. You know, it's hard. I did a webinar um, a month or so ago with Eddie Como. You know, that is the head coach from the uh, Georgia Swarm. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Great guy. He he says when American coaches learn the off-ball two-man game to go along with what's going on on ball, uh, you will see that that's the biggest opportunity um, that's that's not really being leveraged yet. Um, I was curious about your thoughts on that statement. Well, it's interesting you say that. It's what I was noticing in your box clips was how there wasn't better defensive positioning on the weak side. And the reason was, was there was, there was a guy at X. So there had to be someone on the ball side of X. And then the backside movement was incredible. The trading and exchanging that was going on was occupying defenders so much that when they did get the middle, their hands was clean. So I do believe that it's hard. Like I said, like most of the clips you showed, the guys were backing off a lot yeah. and they were, they were giving them a lot of space. So to read, I wanted, I was wondering what it would look like if they jammed them up and, and tried to force, but in the box, when you jam them up a lot, you get a lot of nations looks where they, they push off of you and they, move, they use your momentum against you in the, uh, in the field game. You can, squeeze it a little bit by getting higher and, and being a little more physical because the picks can't be moving. But, but in the big games at the end of the year, they don't, they don't call much of it. So that off ball stuff, like yeah. you have to zone the weak side or else yeah. for no other reason than to get the ball carrier looking over there instead yeah. of reading the pick, you know, like you have to give, again, I, I, I believe in this defensive philosophy of the guy with the ball has to be concerned with the seven. Because if he's just looking at the guy, if he's just trying to manipulate the picker or the, the guy, uh, his defender or the guy's covering the picker, that's a pretty easy read. You know, he's only looking at two guys. So the other players, if they aren't filling space and kind of showing and, and slowing him down a little bit to help out the guys on the ball, he's right. I mean, that other piece of it is, is daunting. It's a daunting task to defend yeah. this stuff now. I'm John Canaris, founder of Oxia Time, a watch company specializing in university branded watches. Before I fell in love with watches, I fell in love with lacrosse. Maybe you've heard of the Airgate? Well, that was me in goal that day. We may not have won the national championship, but we did win the Ivy League that year and two years before. The first time, we got a ring that we never wore. The second time, we got a watch that while it had great sentimental value, the quality didn't match the significance of our achievements or the memories we created. Ever since then, I've looked for a watch with the design and quality that would live up to my experiences at Penn. After 30 years of looking and not finding what I wanted, I decided to build it myself. At Axia Time, we create Swiss-made automatic watches with stylish designs and quality befitting the universities we represent. Premium watches without the premium price. Check us out at axiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. Yeah, I think you're going to see it too, especially as you see two-man games slowing down and being played a little bit more on the wings. 
you're going to see more backside action on the other wing that will resemble the kind of motions that you're seeing in box with the with the seals and the slips and the up pick slip that up pick slip in particular in my yeah. opinion such a huge opportunity where you have two players backside and the low player comes on an up pick and all of a sudden he just cuts the middle and there's two guys thinking about zoning it and there's nobody guarding him or two guys guarding him. Um, or that, that slam pick where he slams his own man into the guy covering the ball. I mean, there's those two guys are standing right next to each other and it's kind of a, I got him, you take him for the situation. <laughs> I just, you know, that was, that looked really hard in the box game when they were shoving their own man on an inside seal and slamming him into the, the on-ball defender. I, I, I'm watching and I'm saying, how, how do you, how do you stop this? You know, on, and on the weak side, they're circling like hockey. So they couldn't really zone it up. And so they're just creating space by the invisible plays off the ball in the box game are, I mean, it, it's brilliance. It really is like the, the way they're moving and, and how excited they get when their defender isn't part of the play to help and they know it. I mean, that is IQ, that's lacrosse IQ at its highest level. I mean, cool. it's, it's beautiful. I mean, it's unless you're coaching the defense, right? <laughs> it's hard. Everybody okay. wants to be an offensive coach now. <laughs> I got one for you on V-hold or no V-hold. What's your philosophy on that? I, I go back and forth with it. You know, I, I, I do believe offensive players don't like it, but – I like our guys to challenge a little farther away from the goal. So the question is always, when do you lock up? Because if you try to V hold 12 yards away from the goal, unless you're exceptional, yeah, you're, you're either going to get a penalty or he's going to run through your stick. Yeah. So I, I, I believe around the goal line, when guys are turning the corner, we lock up, you know, we, we use this term sticky. When the goalie yells sticky, that means you lock up. And even if it's a V hold, you, you wrap your hand. I mean, even if it's a cross check hold, you wrap your hands around them. But I, I do believe that I, you know, I don't think every kid can do it. You know, we, we have, I don't think every kid can do it. I, I, I do believe it's recruitable. It's a recruitable skill. And, uh, you know, I'm looking for that more now than I certainly was when I was recruiting at Duke and coaching the offense. Um, but th there, there's times when it hurts you. I, I do believe that like, if you want to challenge guys really far away from the goal, it's hard. Because if you get comfortable in that field, that you're counting on your stick a lot. Around the goal line, you can open your legs and get a really wide base, mm -hmm. and you can make it really hard to get around you, but that's in a short area. And you can kind of cover both, both sides in a way. Yeah, you know, you can you know, use your knee and your forearm for sure. But, you know, 15 yards away from the goal, you cannot just wow. open. Yeah. So I believe in contact right off the dodge. And so, like, for example, if we were covering a guy at X and he split to his right, I would, and, he, and you were a right-handed player, I would want a push before we V-hold. I'd want, I'd want to reroute him. No doubt. Now, not easily, easier said than done sometimes yep. against these guys. Like, you know, trying to get your hands on Pat Spencer is, is another story, right? And, uh, and some of these guys who are playing now, I, I, I do think the attack position now is being played at a high level. Yeah. I, I think the confidence kids are playing with and the amount of points they're scoring so the v hold yes close to the goal you know if you if you were playing on a football field i would say inside the hash marks we yeah. use it yeah. outside the hash marks we don't yeah and that's kind of what i meant i mean at the end of the day like yeah. you can't use every skill in every place um but i i think there was a time where the v hold was 
a big part of the game. And then there became a time when the V-hole was eliminated from the game. And I really feel like that limits your effectiveness. I mean, bottom line is if a righty gets a step on you and you're a righty, what else you got sometimes? <laughs> you know, you got to get your stick in there, right? I mean, no, there's no question about it. Um, but you're right. I think it's come back with, with Coach Corrigan and Coach Burnett at Notre Dame. You know, I, I think they had a big part of it. Yeah. Um, and again, like when, when you watch really good defensive teams now, regardless of the sport, I mean, one of the guys I watch the most is I watch Tony Bennett coach defense. And you watch him coach defense on YouTube with the University of Virginia basketball team. I mean, that is the communication level and the, the filling of, of areas and taking away space is incredible. But my point is, most of the best defensive you see now, it's what they don't do that defines them, not what they do do. Uh, you know, like if you watch, like, for argument's sake, Jerry Burns' defenses, they don't slash you. Mm-hmm. They are always, like, poking and lifting and even at times lunging because they have help. I mean, I, I don't think that's the, the word he would like to use, but they are, like, using the head of their stick, and they don't slash. Yeah. If the ball's on the ground, they're digging. They're digging. They're not slashing. And I, and I think that is the most impressive thing that can be coached is because kids want to beat the other kid up. You know, that's why they play that position. And if you can, like, fundamentally take that out of their game, they become more disruptive. Because most kids absorb slashes and they just throw the ball. But right. nobody absorbs a stick under their elbow without moving away. <laughs> so I, I do think that the definition of really good defense now is devils in the details. You know, like, do you not allow your offensive player to walk you away from help? Right? And – as a pole in Division One lacrosse now, what you're what you're recruiting is guys who can help and cover their man, not just stand in front of him when he has the ball off an end line. Yeah. He has to be able to get inside and help, and then get out and win a battle on a short corner. Yeah, I mean it's really not about how overly athletic you are. I mean it certainly helps, right. but you need to be able to you know we, we call it deucing. Deucing to us is playing too. You got to play your man and half of somebody else's until he has the ball or else, you know, you're just a really good athlete that kind of doesn't know what you're doing <laughs> and you're putting other guys in a bad spot. You got to process so many things at one time and, and, and constantly over the, the lifespan of that possession. There's so many different roles you're going to play when you're there's, trying to be deucing. There's no question about it. And, and that's why, the landmarks, like finding your spot to get in as the ball is moving to a particular spot on the field, the quicker you get to that landmark, the more time you have to assess what the situation is and what your responsibility is. And the younger players get there slower, and then they have to think faster than they're ready to, and that's when they are. Where the older players, like if you were to watch, like if you were to watch our film last year, we were older defensively. We had three seniors, uh, well, two seniors and, and uh, a junior and Giles Harris. They processed things because they knew where to stand. Mm-hmm. Our team this year, in the beginning of the year, we are late. You know, when I'm watching film, I said, where are you guys? You know, like, you're not, the ball's been in this kid's stick two, two full seconds, and you're not at your landmark yet. Of course you're not going to figure out what's going on. Yeah. So the team position off the ball gets you to the point where you can as- assess it. But if you don't get there, you're not going to see it. And if you see it, you're going to see it late and you're too far away from your other teammate to communicate with them and you're yelling late. And, you know, it's funny, you laughed at the term, but one of the ter- things I say 
in our practices is a lot is I got them, you take them because that's when we screw up, <laughs> you know, you know, we're late on a pick switch call or, you know, the kid sees the mumbo late and two guys go to the outside guy and they throw it to the slip or something like that. Yeah. And I say it all the time, like communication has to be in the most important part, but if you're not in a position to communicate, so if you don't get to your spot, you're not four to five yards away from each other, who's going to hear you? You know what I mean? So like the, the getting to the spots to talk is more important. You know, I, I shouldn't say more important, but it probably trumps the second. Yeah. All right. Last, uh, last topic, um, recruiting. What are you guys looking for in a defenseman? Well, and this is the interesting part is how much can you do? How much do you know? You know, like I, I watch man down in club games so intently where I probably didn't as much when I was, you know, coaching the offense. I, like, I want to know who can, who instinctively swivels their head, who instinctively versus, you know, obviously it's, it's, it's always obvious who the best athletes are, right? Like the field tilts towards those guys. When they pick up a ball, they race down the field. That's obvious. Right. But it, it's the who can play too. That's the game in college lacrosse now. It really is. Um, length is great. You know, like the, the unteachable, so to speak, are great. You know, the speed, the size, the strength. But I don't always know how easy it is to teach playing two to a kid. You know, like I think they want to learn it because they're, most kids, you know, they, they want to please you. But it, it's something that they have to have, and it's a basketball thing. And it's, uh, it, it's really hard for lacrosse-only players to have, I think. It's a multi-sport athlete trait. So defensively, I, I would say, you know, Coach Dinowski is, you know, the first thing he says to me when I say, hey, I saw this kid. What else does he play? You know, that's like the first thing he asks. So multi-sport athletes are, are really big. Um, ball skills, uh, I do believe with the shot clock, the, the amount of times you have to play another six, uh, another 80 seconds and get a stop, it's like 40%. So you better get it up and out. You yeah. stop them, get it out. So that ball skills piece is – is, but that can, I think that can be taught a lot better than the, the playing too. But I, the, the ability to I, – I watch how quickly guys get engaged into are – you, are you ready? Like to me, it's so obvious when an offense is getting initiated. Are you ready? Did you get to your spot? Are you, are you like – are you fully engaged? Because energy and focus is half the battle with defense. Mm-hmm. No you doubt. Know, you, offensively you could be a little I don't want to say lackadaisical but you could be a little I'm hanging out I'm watching I'm going to see what's going on defensively you can't right you know defensively every day you have to be fully engaged I tell the guys you should have a little bit of a headache at the end of practice from the (laughs) concentration level that you're being asked to do you know and it's so Jerry Byrne I remember you did a, a podcast Jerry said something about using the he used the word granular I, I agree with him hundred percent. It's so little, you know, and it's, it's not that it's bad defense. It's the difference between being good and in, in the top 10 or 12, yeah. you know, it's so small and it's to be really good at defense. You, you have to do, it's, it's not like you can tell your team, Hey, we got to do this one thing better and we're going to be a top 10 defense. It's, we got to do, like, I'm sorry, I meant to say, we're going to do one thing 100% better. You got to do 100 things 1% better. 
<laughs> you know, and, and it's really that. And, uh, you know, the, the defensive individual work isn't as saucy, you know, as shooting at corners and, and things like that. So the mindset of a defender has to be, you know, I, I, I think changing from offense to defense, my mindset had to change. Yeah. You know, it's a different, it's more of a taskmaster than it is a, hey, I saw what you saw. That's a good look. Don't worry about the turnover versus no, no, you have to be here. All the, you know, it's, it's more time. of an intense day. Yeah. yeah. So I do believe that. But, you know, in terms of recruiting defensemen, yeah, I'm looking for guys that can do that at right. that level. And I do about, believe playing, playing for good teams, like, you know, you get the Calvert Hall kid, he knows how to play defense. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. like, good programs, it matters. Yeah, no doubt. Um, all right. How about middies? Well, I do think you need a mixture at that position. I have always said that I want to try to recruit the top three righty midi and the top three lefty midi in every class. I'm a big believer offensively in having on your first midfield a righty lefty combination so you can scissor across the field. Um, you know, our, our first championship, it was uh, Rotans and Turry, and then it was Lawson and Trapuca, and then it was Jones and Class. I'm a big fan of, you know, obviously the size and the athleticism is great. I don't think every guy that you pick up has to be able to beat his man individually. So, you know, one of the things I've always said was he either has to be able to win a one-on-one -on -one game or play man up. So one of those two things he's got to be able to do, yeah. you know, so, um, but you know, the, at a place like ours, we, we get some of those raw specimens that can be worked with and coach Stanowski loves a challenge like that. So, you know, again, the unteachables, the size, the speed, all that stuff. But in terms of the skill set, he's got to be able to, to get his own or play against his own. Like one of those two things he has to be high end at, you know, and then attack. Attack, you know, I think we're changing a little bit here. We've always, um, we've always looked at athleticism and being able, you know, able to win your battle. If you're the two, can you outplay their two? If you're the three, can you outplay their? But now I, I think you can get guys that are pure shooters and scorers, even though maybe they can't beat a, beat a guy. Yeah. You know, we, we have a freshman now that, although he's pretty athletic, is a pure scorer. And, uh, he's a tough matchup, whether he's being covered by a short stick or a pole. And I think that those guys on attack don't have to be electric speed wise, the riding part of the game. You can make a decision if you're really good on attack that you can ride to sub and play defense. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's not ideal. I mean, you, you see the pressure that teams like Virginia put on the ride and it's so helpful, but I, I believe there's more of a place in our program now uh, as a pure scorer than in the past where we always wanted guys that could dodge a little bit, win their battle, you know, because I guess our philosophy was always that they're on the field for every possession. They need to be able to, you know, win a battle and, and score. But uh, Matt, Matt likes the idea of he thinks attackmen have to be good low angle shooters because he, he thinks with the shot clock, you know, at the end of shot clock, you get shots and then maybe they're not from the dead center of the cage and inside the hash marks. And, you know, as you know, with the box, these scorers, they score goals, you know, and those low angle shots at the end of shot clocks, they're still shots. And so Matt has convinced me that, you know, when we're looking to look for guys that always score, 
You know, you watch these games, like, you know, you see this team play three times and the same kid has three goals in each game. Maybe you don't see him blown by anybody, but he scores. Yeah. So the, the idea of production has become more important to us rather than athleticism. Although, again, you know, those guys do jump off the field. And then um, last position, goalies. Interesting. Uh, I've been thinking about this a lot. I have a lot of friends, goalies, and they seem to think that the new wave of great goaltenders has, has longer arms. I, I don't, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of hearing this and trying to see it, and they think it's harder to step to the ball than ever. So being able to reach all areas of the goal with just your hand speed is something that they are talking to me about a lot. Brian Kelly from Calvert Hall seems to agree with it a little bit. And uh, I'm looking at it. Um, the, to your point, guys are getting the middle of the field, whether you want them to or not, right? So does size come into effect? Do you want more uh, filled up? Um, kids are practicing shooting more than ever. I mean, the shooting is... I mean, you, when you think about the difference be, between, you know, the year 2000 to the year 2020 and 20 years, the, the amount of guys on a team that, like Quinn Kessler used to say, he used to have his save percentage get fat versus the second midfield. You don't get that anymore. I mean, they may not be able to run by, but they can all shoot. You know, like you see that with teams, you know, they, they maybe go in with their second midfield and they got guys who can step down and hunt it. So I'm looking into this a little bit more, but I, I think lefties, are are certainly you want to have one of each yeah um i I, that's a tough one i've been trying to because it's weird like you watch the best club teams they don't play much defense right because they win all the time and they they have like great face-off guys and then you you, so you you really got you got to watch again i think the the really good programs in high school defensively and in the goal are where you want to kind of do a lot of your searching you know because they play the best schedule and they play against the kind of speed that you're going to see in your shots. So, but I would say bigger is better in a lot of ways, but these guys are trying to be a little bit about um, longer arms and stuff like that, like the Mark Spruitts and the Larry Quinns. So I'm, I'm kind of listening. I'm doing a lot of uh, listening during this uh, quarantine period of guys telling me uh, what they think the best thing for a goalie is. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been watching and thinking about goaltending a lot lately myself. And if you look at the PLL, you know, who really have, are the best goalies in the world, they, there's a lot of different um, there is. A lot of different guys, you know, lefties, righties, tall, uh, short, compact. I mean, you know, very different between Kelly and Gilman and Troutner and Blaze Reardon and, um, you know, like, and Dylan Ward, you know, now he's in the PLL, you know, it's, uh, yeah, very interesting. They, they, none of them do the things that everybody says you're supposed to do. Well, I mean, listen, <laughs> with their stance, and their step and all that, none of them do that. I, that's what listen, I do. Watch, watch my good friend, John Galloway play and then watch him teach. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you couldn't be further away from that. I mean, um, but I, you know, the leadership piece is something that Coach Janowski's big on. He he looks at it like the quarterback that lifts with the linemen. Yeah. He wants the goal to be part of the guys like that. So like that mentality is is, is huge because if he's going to stand in front of them and demand them to be a certain way, he better live it. You know. Um, but I, it, like you said, I mean, you watch Troutner, you watch like Jack Kelly, you watch 
Adam Gittleman, you watch these guys and they're all different. They're all you different. Know, like, I grew up with like watching Salacasio and Paul Schmoller and, and yeah. saying, geez, these guys are incredible. But you also didn't see the release points that you see now and, and all these shots. And, and while I still think they would be incredible, I, I just think it's a, it's a challenging position. It is really challenging. I mean, how many guys are really over 60% now versus yeah, 10, 10 years ago? Yeah, hardly anybody. I mean, 50% get it done now. Yeah, I mean, we won the national championship at 48% for the season. I mean, like, yeah. like, and we weren't, you know, dominant facing off. It was just, it was, inter- it was just an interesting time. I mean, the, the, big, the big stat I think is, is important. I'll leave you with this. Um, I think it's tough to win a college lacrosse game when your face-off percentage and save percentage don't equal 100% between the two of them. One of them has to be enough to get you over 100%. Our record in games where we are under 100%, maybe 40% facing off and 48% in the goal or whatever it is, is low. Yeah. So that, that's a stat I look to. It's something you might want to just take, keep an eye on. It's something that has, uh, has caught my attention in, in our loss. I, I just tried to like look back in like the last 10 years of the games we lost, what stat it jumps off. You know, and the obvious is like the other team made a lot of saves or whatever. You didn't shoot well. But the consistent one is that we are below 100% in those two statistics. Interesting. Well, Ronnie, thank you so much for taking the time, man. I love talking lacrosse with you and uh, for coming on the podcast. Well, I appreciate the time. And uh, always good talking to you. Take care.